Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, my guest is Victoria Garrow, and she is going to talk about her own experience with addiction in her family and losing her mother to a drug overdose at the age of 13 and the impact that had on her and how she turned that experience into the Lookout Project. It was awesome to talk to Victoria. She really is passionate about this project and passionate about taking her experience and turning it into something valuable for others. I hope you are inspired as much as I am by Victoria. It was just great to talk with her and such positive energy that she is bringing to the world and the whole Lookout project itself and her whole team. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, think about writing a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. That really does help the Addicted Mind podcast get a lot of exposure. And I really appreciate it. And I do read them and it does mean a lot to me. So thank you for everyone who's done that. I really appreciate it. And join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, Victoria Garrow, and she is one of the founders of the Outlook Project. Victoria, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what this project is. We'll get into why you you did this and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a little bit of background about my childhood because that's where it really all starts off. Many people in my family have struggled with addiction and especially my biological mom has struggled with addiction. For 20 years, she struggled. And when I was growing up, she was no longer able to take care of me for a period of time. And Throughout that time, she ended up being incarcerated for drug possession. After she was released from incarceration when I was 13, she ended up relapsing, and she actually passed away of a heroin overdose. And so 
that was the first thing in my life that made me aware of the importance of overdose prevention, specifically for people who have been incarcerated. So this is really, really relevant to you. I mean, you experience that and that has to be as a 13 year old has to be so painful to lose your mom and to go through that process. Yeah, definitely very painful and also confusing and and sad, especially because her addiction pulled her away from me and my siblings for so long during our childhood. So I was mourning the loss of my mom, but also mourning the loss of the fact that I didn't really get to know her because of the way that her addiction was consuming her life. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, addiction takes everything away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so after that, I sort of just tried to push my feelings down and keep going on with life and got really excited about biology uh, my freshman year of high school and decided that I was going to be a doctor. It seemed like a good goal to work towards. And so I was doing everything I needed to do. And that was a really good way of coping with my feelings. Um, maybe not a great way in, in hindsight. Right. Right. But um, it was effective. It's got, the, it got, it's got the pluses and minuses, right? It's, you right. know, sometimes our feelings can like push us in positive directions as we try and run away from them. Exactly. Yeah. And so I ended up getting accepted to the University of Michigan to do pre-med. I uh, was really stoked about that. And I just was still on the grind trying to do everything I was supposed to do to get into medical school. And I was working in a neurosurgery laboratory and talking to my mentor about my story. And all of a sudden, it just kind of clicked for me that I could combine my passion for medicine and desire to be a doctor with my desire to change the injustices surrounding overdose deaths. So that's how I got excited about it. I then spent a summer in Baltimore working as an HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C counselor and tester. And there I saw so many people affected by addiction, especially working as well in a clinic for people who inject drugs. And at one point at a community health fair, I saw Narcan being passed out. And when I came back to the University of Michigan my junior year, I was reflecting all this and really hoping to get to be a part of something related to addiction during my college years. And I was really coming up dry, um, not really finding anything. And I started doing research on the situation of my biological mom's death. And I found some staggering statistics. In some states, in the two weeks after someone is released from incarceration, they're up to 127 times more likely to die of a drug overdose than the general population. Wow. And on top of that, over two-thirds of people who are incarcerated are struggling with substance use disorders. So there's obviously uh, a big problem there and a big overlap. So you really started to... I guess in kind of understanding your own history, you started to discover this information that really said, whoa, this is this is a huge, this is a huge problem. Maybe that we're not looking at. Yeah, absolutely. It was sad and enlightening to realize that my biological mom's death was was not very unique. And I started looking into where people were doing things like this and In the country, I found maybe five examples of people or of situations where there was actually interventions for people being released from incarceration. And I started to think, why aren't we giving Narcan to the people that are being released from incarceration if we know that they're the most vulnerable population? And so 
with that idea, I was just brainstorming and I was walking on campus one day and I saw a sign and it said, optimize social innovation challenge, turn your ideas into impact. And it was sort of a think tank sort of situation that I participated in for maybe seven or eight months. And through that, I really started reflecting more and more on these ideas and recruiting some teammates. And that's where the Lookout Project started. Wow. So you started to take your ideas and put them into some kind of solution to help and to start to create this. You know, as you were sharing, we were talking earlier before we started recording, and I was telling you about my experience when, you know, I was driving with my family home in, in Northern California. And, you know, there was this person on the side of the road, this car was pulled over, this lady was waving her hands and no one was stopping. So I, I stopped and got out and there was this gentleman, he, he was kind of halfway leaning out the car. And, you know, we go over there and he's not breathing and she, he's, he's like, he's overdosing. And so I started doing CPR on him. And luckily she had some injectable Narcan and, and got that to him and that woke him up but for a while. I mean, I'm just kind of reflecting like of how this opioid problem is just so big. I'm just driving with my family and here's this person who is is ODing on the side of the road, right at off the freeway. And I, I, thank goodness the person with him had Narcan, but you said something else that struck me and just kind of hit me was that I was talking to this woman who was with him and she said to me, she goes, he just got out of jail. He just got out. And I didn't put those two together until you just said that, that what you're saying is like I experienced. And so it's, it's to me, I'm just like kind of blown away at that and seeing, yeah, that it, it's right there. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why people who are coming out of incarceration are so vulnerable to overdose is because after being incarcerated, Drugs are leaving their system. They're forced into detox. And through that process, their tolerance is dropping way down. And so on top of that, they're also not receiving proper addiction treatment, likely, uh, while they're incarcerated. And so they get out. The addiction problem is still present. And their tolerance is way low. So the person will go to use the same route that they might have used before. And now that they've had a period of forced abstinence, that same amount that they use before is now toxic to their body. And so those opioids are just filling up the brain. And when those opioid receptors in the brain are full, that actually halts breathing. And so the Narcan is able to push those opioids out of the receptors and allow breathing to return again. Yeah, that's exactly what happened when I was there is that for a while, I didn't know if he was going to make it because he was starting to turn blue and... But once the Narcan started to kind of kick in a couple minutes later, about two or three minutes, he started to breathe again. Wow. So absolutely. And that it was pretty overwhelming for me to, to do that and go through that process to see that. So I'm glad you're doing this work. So let's talk a little bit about the Outlook Project then. So you started to put these ideas together. You started to put the ideas together. You started to say, I got to take action here. Yeah, absolutely. And just to correct you a little bit, it's actually the Lookout Project. And how you can remember that is our hope is that people will be on the lookout for an overdose. Uh, And another kind of way to think about it is when someone is incarcerated, looking out, 
to when they aren't going to be incarcerated anymore and thinking about how they can prevent overdoses for themselves and also people in their lives. Right. So, the Lookout Project. It's right in yes. front of me and I'm reading it backwards. <laughs> I don't know why. But no the worries. Lookout. The Lookout yeah, Project. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So putting it together. Yeah. Our original goal was that we would do overdose education and Narcan distribution in the Huron Valley Women's Correctional Facility, which is a prison for women in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So that was our original hope. And we were doing a lot of research. We were using this great primer that we'd found where people had done research on the programs that existed that kind of gave us some guidance of how we could do this. And we were in touch with the prison um, talking and we ended up standing in front of a panel of 25 judges for the Social Innovation Challenge, me and my two other teammates, Hannah and Michaela. And we ended up receiving the funding out of hundreds of teams. Um, we were one of one or two dozen teams that was chosen for the funding. And so we were, we were just really thrilled to get started with this. And then COVID happened. Right. Yep. So that put a big, big stop sign in front of us, unfortunately, in some ways. We lost touch with the prison that we had plans of working with. We couldn't get in contact with them. Obviously, we couldn't go in person to do an overdose education seminar. Right. And so we said, okay, well, hmm, what are we going to do? Uh, around that same time, though, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services actually started a program where they were providing naloxone to prisons. So we're, we were happy about that. We're like, okay, finally, someone's doing something about this problem. This need is is being met at least the Narcan part, not necessarily the education right. part, but the Narcan part. So then we said, okay, but what about jails? And man, we emailed and called every single county jail in Michigan. We just, you know, split up the list of them between us teammates and we're calling and calling and just no calls back, no responses. We talked to a receptionist and never heard from them again, or all we got was voicemails over and over. And man, we were, we were really frustrated. We were just thinking, what are we supposed to do with this money we just got? Uh, we had all these plans, but we decided we'd push forward. But that had to be so frustrating just in and of itself. Like here you are offering this incredible learning to help people survive, to help people survive their addiction, to, to maybe be able to get support or get help or, or something. And no one's returning your calls. I mean, that's almost crazy in and of itself. Absolutely. Incredibly frustrating. And of course, you know, you give some slack because, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic was, was very hectic, especially at the beginning. People didn't know what to do. People weren't necessarily in the office. But what so many people weren't addressing was the fact that people are still struggling with addiction. And now more than ever, people are extremely vulnerable to overdose. And so it was very frustrating that there wasn't a whole lot of people that were taking our call seriously. Right. They just weren't paying attention. I think that says something about drug treatment in general and addiction, the way we look at addiction in our society overall, that here you are having this great project, willing to come in and do education, and they're not willing to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we even said, we don't even need to come in. Let us just send you stuff. And yeah, no, no responses. So that was that was pretty frustrating. But we realized, you know, during COVID, there, there's still overdoses are increasing. This is an issue. And so we hired an animator who had recently graduated from the art school at U of M. And he helped us animate a video about overdose prevention during COVID-19. 
And so that video got us started with putting together our overdose response kits. And we decided, well, we're having so much trouble and we're not able to access the population we originally thought. So let's just get these kits out. We have these funds. Let's just get these kits out to whoever needs them. And so we started distributing kits through the mail. And man, at first the orders were really slow despite our efforts of sharing it with with everyone. And then we decided to try out social media advertising. And so we did social media advertising for $1 a day and our kit distribution just took off. And now we've distributed probably, we're getting close to probably 1,200 overdose response kits that we've sent out. Wow, that's amazing. How creative to kind of run up against this roadblock and then go, okay, let's pivot. Let's change our strategy. How do we do that? Let's get this out and then leverage technology to do it. Wow. Yeah, it was frustrating at first, but really amazing to see how we could pivot and figure things out. And This was in the midst of COVID. So we were all just meeting over video calls, doing this all separately. And it was really amazing to see how we could bring together our collective passion and be recruiting teammates, teammates that I'd never even met in person for for two years, and that people were just coming together and that we were getting things done, even though we couldn't do it physically in the same place. Wow. And I, I think I imagine all the lives that you have saved. Yeah, we've had some really amazing testimonies that we've gotten through our reorder form. And that's a form that we have where people can come and say, hey, we we used the overdose response kit you sent us. I gave away the overdose response kit. You know, I lost it or something. And we've gotten a lot of really amazing reports through that. Um, We have reports of over 12 people who have used our kits to reverse overdoses and in the field of harm reduction, it's it's pretty well known that it's really hard to get data about how Narcan kits are used. And so we estimate that it's likely a lot more than we know that have been used. But since the time that we started, we've always said if all of this work means that one person's life is saved, then it's all worth it. And so it's been really amazing to see that be happening over and over again. So let's talk a little bit about what's in these kits. Someone out there who doesn't understand why someone who's struggling with addiction would need a kit. What is this about and and how does this help and what's in a kit? Yeah. So the primary component that is responsible for reversing overdoses is Narcan nasal spray. The other name for it is naloxone. And that's pretty small, about the size of just your palm. And Basically, you just put it up someone's nose when they're overdosing and you push the little plunger. And as I said before, those particles end up replacing the opioids and the opioid receptors and allowing someone to continue breathing. And so someone might wonder, well, how do I know that someone's overdosing? So one thing that is in our kit is a pamphlet that goes through how to spot and respond to an overdose all during COVID-19. And so some of those symptoms that people can look out for is gray or ashen um, lips and skin and, and fingernails, as you said, maybe a gurgling sort of noise that is happening in the absence of breathing. So those are some things. And then being unconscious and, and slumped over, as you said, with the guy that was hanging out of the car. And the, the great thing, though, is that if you're not totally sure, but you're pretty sure someone's overdosing, and they're unconscious and, and unresponsive, 
the great thing is that naloxone it's not going to hurt anyone by injecting it. Um, if, right. if I were yeah. to put it up my nose right now, nothing would happen. So it's, it's totally safe and better to be safe than sorry. And so our kits include two doses of that Narcan because sometimes one dose isn't enough. Sometimes, unfortunately, two doses aren't even enough. And that's why a big priority that we emphasize in our packet is that you need to be calling 911. And luckily, we have a lot of medical amnesty laws in our country that makes it so that calling and reporting an overdose, you're not going to get in trouble for calling and you're not right, going to get right. in trouble for being there. So as I said, we've got the two doses of Narcan nasal spray. We've got the educational pamphlet about responding to an overdose during COVID-19. And then throughout COVID, we also had a CPR face shield. We had two hand sanitizer packets and we had reusable or not reusable, disposable face masks. And that is all in a reusable zipper pouch. And then a thing that we've added a bit more recently in the past year is fentanyl test strips. So the importance of that, uh, we received those as a donation. And so it was just pretty easy to start putting them in our kits. And that allows people to figure out if fentanyl is in the drugs, as fentanyl is the leading cause of overdose deaths. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that and what's going on there, because I think that's really, really important. And once again, going back to that story I told you earlier, that was another thing she said. She said, I told him I think there's fentanyl in it. I told him I think there's fentanyl in it. And it just kind of as you as you talk about this, it's just bringing back that that whole memory. Absolutely. And what a lot of people don't realize is that most commonly, fentanyl is going to be in heroin, laced in heroin. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it's also being put in other drugs, which is really, really scary. Um, for example, my partner, he actually has a family friend of his that on his 30th birthday, him and his friends were, were going out to the casino and hanging out. And, you know, he was a really straight laced guy and he had two kids and a wife at home. And they decided, oh, you know, let's get let's get some coke and let's let's do some cocaine. So he went to go try cocaine for the first time, and there was fentanyl in it, and and he died and left behind his wife and two kids. Oh, and that's so awful. Had no idea. And so, yeah. even the importance of testing other drugs for fentanyl as well is super important, which is why we have the fentanyl in our kits as an optional component that people can say yes or no to. Right. And that could save their life because if they're, you know, fentanyl, you need such a minute amount to OD on. It's so potent that it can, it can, yeah, people can OD real quickly on that. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that the problem is more than just necessarily making sure people have naloxone, which is super important. And and it's so amazing that that woman had naloxone with her. Um, that's absolutely huge because a Narcan kit in your closet isn't going to do anything if, if you realize someone is overdosing when you're in your car, right? And a lot of, yeah, the, yeah. of people overdosing are, are saying that they were in their car and someone overdosed or they were at a restaurant. So they grabbed the kit out of their car because someone was overdosing in the parking lot. So really important to, to keep it with you as often as possible. Yeah, I don't think he would have made it if that wasn't there. I just the way he looked and what was going on, I don't think he would have made it. And I, I, I don't know who this gentleman is. I'll, I'll never know. But I, I hope he has a second chance and and finds 
some recovery or some hope and some healing. So let's talk a little bit, switch gears a little bit, and let's talk about that harm reduction approach to addiction treatment and what that means and how this project fits into that. Absolutely. So first off, just a broad understanding of how I understand harm reduction. Harm reduction, the belief is that people are going to make decisions about, you know, using drugs or, or maybe having sex or whatever it is that could potentially, you know, put you in harm's way. And we can't just force those people to not make those decisions. Instead, let's think about how we can prevent those decisions from causing someone to die, whether it's through an opioid overdose or through a infectious disease diagnosis, um, whatever it is. And I think a good example that I kind of like to think about is driving a car, right? Driving a car can be very dangerous. But even though people die in car fatalities, we don't say, oh, well, no, you, you can't drive a car. Instead, we have, we have traffic laws and we have seat belts and we have all these things to protect us in the process. And so the idea of harm reduction uh, within the Lookout Project is we know people are, are using drugs. We know people are using opioids. Let's make sure that they don't die so that they do have the opportunity to be in recovery. And I think recovery is generally thought of as complete abstinence. But in my opinion and the opinion of, of many others, recovery is any positive steps towards change and, and improvement in one's life. And so absolutely, recovery could be just you know testing your drugs and, and using clean needles and making sure you have Narcan with you. And I think what's so amazing about harm reduction is that it is really an amazing step towards taking away some of the stigma surrounding drug use. And by welcoming people who use drugs into spaces and saying, hey, here are resources to keep you alive. You're a human being that, that deserves to be alive. And um, let's yeah. help ensure that your life continues. That also is such an amazing segue into treatment and a great segue into relationships. Really, I think the antithesis of treatment is isolation. And that's what we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic. So many, many people dying of, of overdoses and addiction escalating because they're just completely alone. Having these harm reduction approaches where, where people can get access to services um, despite using drugs, it really allows for human interaction and kindness and connection. Yeah, I see I see harm reduction as, as such such a compassionate approach to this issue because I think you're absolutely right. You know, addiction really is about that isolation and being alone and being in your trauma and your pain and and not having a way out. And you know, I believe one of the ways out is is connecting with other people who can understand and support you while you heal that trauma or that pain or that hurt or whatever it is. To, to be able to get that support and be able to find it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And for example, when, you know, we're treating, say, type 2 diabetes, uh, a requirement for treatment isn't complete and total abstinence from all sugar ever. That's not how it works. Even if, if someone keeps eating sugar or making decisions that aren't really helpful for treating their type 2 diabetes, they're still going to get care. And I don't think that 
total absence should be a requirement for, for treatment or services or ability to access those the same way as type 2 diabetes doesn't require total abstinence from sugar. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious with, with this, have you gotten any pushback against it or, or people who don't support you or against this approach? So I think some people have asked some questions that we're, we're a bit probing, like, hmm, well, does this enable people to, to use drugs? And the answer there is is no. People are going to be using drugs either way. And right. this just offers the opportunity for them to stay alive and, and not die of an overdose. But no, for the most part, we've had an incredible amount of support. I think that the only really barriers we've had is that we're all mostly just young adults trying to come into the space right. and make a difference without a whole lot of qualifications. So being taken seriously, like, you know, like you guys are, are serious about this and you know your stuff and you know what you're doing and then kind of getting that bias of like, oh, you guys are young college kids, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So a little, little bit of that, but Okay. Mostly, we've had a lot of support, a lot of people rooting us on, and a lot of people welcoming us into their space and, and into their work. And yeah, just a, a lot of encouragement for the most part. Well, it's awesome. I, I think what you guys are doing is amazing. And you are younger, I guess, younger than me, but it just brings so much hope for the world to see people like you out there making these positive changes. And it's really inspiring to see it and, and so hopeful. I think it's inspiring and hopeful too. It's very easy to feel pessimistic a little bit about this issue as overdose deaths are just continuously yeah. on the rise. But seeing my team, which has grown from myself to three people onto over 30, almost 40 volunteers, I am incredibly hopeful. And I think a big issue within the field of recovery is there just aren't enough people working in it. And so one thing that I found is really my passion through the Lookout Project is mentoring other young adults and volunteers who are in our organization to pursue things that they're passionate about within this field and to give them the encouragement and resources and information they need to do so. Awesome. And I, and I think just, you know, how you're doing this and bringing your own story to this. And I think it's just really amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. So Victoria, one thing I like to ask guests when they, when they come on the show, I like to ask one final question and that's if someone out there is struggling and you'd want to say one thing to them, what would you tell them? What would you say? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that there are people out there that want to support you and want to help you, even if that has been lacking in the past. And as I said before, recovery does not have to be total abstinence. Uh, recovery is any positive step towards change. And so for someone who's living in the middle of addiction and really struggling, even if it's just one positive change, like making sure you're using a clean needle, making sure you have Narcan nearby, talking to someone about how you feel, or 
drinking a glass of water and getting a good night's sleep, all those positive steps, they add up and you have to take care of yourself first. And so that's, that's what I would recommend. Just, just do something to take care of yourself and to show yourself first and foremost that you're worth being taken care of because you are. Oh, thank you, Victoria. It has been so awesome to have you on The Addicted Mind. Where can people find you if they want more information about the Lookout Project? How can they how can they find that or get one of those kits if they want to get one of those kits? Yeah, so our website is lookoutproject.org. And we were originally shipping nationwide, although we've decided to narrow our focus down to just Michigan. Although who knows what the possibilities are for expanding. And so we're completely run off of donations and grants. And so if people would like to donate our cause and help us continue to spread overdose kits around our state and potentially the country again someday, um, they can do that at lookoutproject.org. And there's a little give button. And then for me, I would love anyone to to be a part of my journey um, as well. And so if anyone would like to reach out to me, my email is victoria at thelookoutproject.org. Unfortunately, our email address is, is thelookoutproject.org, but the website is lookoutproject.org. So that's right. a bit of a bummer. But also, if anyone wants to follow my personal account and just stay up to date on what I'm doing, I'm currently doing van life and traveling while leading the Lookout Project and writing a memoir and getting ready for medical school. And so people can follow me on Instagram if they want at Toria, T-O-R-I-A dot the dot explorer. You got it. And I will put all those links in the show notes too at theaddictedmind.com so people can find all that information there. Victoria, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And there you can get all of Victoria's information about her project and even look at how you can get one of those kits. If you're living in Michigan, reach out to them. And once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, don't forget, write us a review, share the podcast with a friend or join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. 
Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.